Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Crew Chats podcast. Now, this is not the normal intro you get into an episode, but that is because it's the season finale. Well, of sorts. But don't worry, the podcast will be returning in the new year with some more fabulous guests. I just wanted to say a massive thank you to all the guests that have been on and everyone that has listened. I truly appreciate it. Now, for this episode, I spoke to costume designer Lindy Hemming. Lindy Hemming, from a young age, had a very keen interest in people and was fascinated by their appearance. She had ample opportunity to further pursue this study when she began her training as an orthopaedic nurse and physiotherapist at an orthopaedic hospital in Shropshire. Whilst working at the hospital, Lindy joined together with a group of friends and started a folk club, where they also put on entertainment for the patients in the hospital. Later, a friend recommended that Lindy apply to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts to study stage management, which she did, and this resulted in a place there. Whilst at Varda, Lindy leaned more towards the discipline of costume design and eventually, upon completing her training, went to work at the Open Space Theatre in Tottenham Court Road as a costume designer for director Charles Marowitz. This led to 15 years of working in theatre, theatres such as Hampstead Theatre, the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company and London's West End, then to designing for films from 1983 to the present day. Lindy's work spans from Mike Lee's Abigail's Party, the 1990 film Topsy Turvy, for which she won an Academy Award, Four Weddings and a Funeral, My Beautiful Laundrette, five James Bond films, Wonder Woman and the upcoming Wonder Woman 1984 and Paddington 1 and 2, to name a few. Hi, Lindy. Hello. How do you do? Good, thank you. And yourself? It's nice to meet you. Yes, likewise. <laughs> like to see, like, nice to meet you through the internet, which is a, yes. more and more common these days. <laughs> the only way that we ever meet anybody now. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> in fact, I might have to put my mask on in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Too much close contact. <laughs> yeah. um, so you're a costume designer and from your perspective what does that mean for you what does that involve well it's a complicated it's complicated as they say and i'm sure you've interviewed other costume designers but i think that i could really sort of slightly go to in from a different angle and say i think that if you're a costume designer what it means is that you kind of have an overriding interest mm. in a few things that are basic things. One of them is, you know, stories and storytelling, obviously. The other is people and what they look like and how they behave. And I think that's one of the most kind of fundamental things, really, in the end. And I suppose, um, as well, I think you have to have an interest in texture and textile and, and how fabrics behave. Because your job is to invent, design or get together somehow a costume which someone will wear in a role, which they, of course, will have quite a large opinion about. And so will the director. And you have also been informed originally what what the role is and, and about it by reading the script. So you will also have made your own mental image because I think when people read a book or a story or a a script, they have in their head an image of of what they think the person that's being written about looks like and is like. And so being a costume designer is being responsible for that kind of soup. You know what I mean? Yeah. You take over and um, I suppose you need to have perhaps a little bit of a feeling for the psychology of people. Because I think you can have different angles on what people dress like and they might not be obvious, but if you really think about what you're reading and who you're reading about, you might come up with something unusual and interesting, which it's then your job to sell to the director and the actors. Um, Of course, it can be rejected and then you go back to doing the more obvious thing. But I think that's kind of 
instead of saying what a costume designer does physically, that's what I'm saying is what a costume designer takes control of. Yeah. And that is the character, the production of the look and aiding the look of the character, which the actor, most importantly, is going to play. Yeah, no, that's a um, really interesting way to put it. I think everyone has their own take on what they're doing. Yeah. Um, you mentioned two things there. Um, which I will delve into a little bit more actually now, is that your relationship with a director um, is obviously mm. very important, I guess. You're both realising a vision together, hand in hand. Yes. Um, how, how, what is that dynamic and how important is it? <laughs> well, I think, I suppose I'd like to say that I've been really, really lucky or chosen to be lucky anyway, <laughs> and have worked for a long time with different, you know, with the same director. So I've had always like, 10 years often I've had 10 years from starting with Mike Lee and oh I don't know I can't even sort of name them all Martin Campbell uh you know lots of directors uh and in the theatre I worked beforehand and I worked with Michael Rudman who was a fantastic director who doesn't direct that much anymore because he's not very well but um I think that the relationship with the director can be lots of different things it doesn't mean you have to be best friends but I think it does mean that when they're talking to you and when they and you have read a script, that somehow or other you come up with a, a, a communal, you know, there's a, there's a feeling of the same idea or a feeling of the same mood, maybe. Mm. And then usually you discuss different films you've watched or different art or different books, things that you've read and seen. And I suppose by using those, it's rather like how people use tear sheets, by using those words and those uh, images and those interests in conversation, you find out whether you've got a common visual language. Mm. And maybe you don't have, and in which case it can be a bit of a struggle, and in which case you, you get there eventually, you really work hard and you get there. But generally speaking, the best uh, relationships, I think, are when you jump off with something in common yeah. and build on that. No, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it's tempting because I, funnily enough, when I was talking to my husband about it, he's like, what kind of interesting, because he's a lay person and I would like to gauge what kind of questions would they want to kind of know and ask? And he's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. do they like, do they get on with the directors? And so I was like, I don't think people are going to, I don't think that's as, it's as straightforward no, no. as that. The truth of the matter is like any relationship you have intensely over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And that would apply to the cinematographer, the production designer, the costume designer, the hair and makeup and the actors. Yeah. There are days when you really click and there are days when, you know, you're, you're not on the same wavelength, but that's just what human beings are like. And I think, mm-hmm most of the time you shouldn't lay too much store by whether you get on with them or whether they're your friend they're the person I think it's often forgotten in films that you are the employee of these this hierarchy of people producers directors you know yeah and so your job your job is to get on with these people without losing sight of your own ideas so that's kind of and your own personality hopefully so that's the answer to that really they're not all your friend and they're not all 
you you know they can see your faults and you can see theirs but your job you're paid and you're chosen to produce something and to do that you need to to work with the people you know yeah no that makes collaborative enterprise the whole thing from start to finish you know yeah I think that's a, a common sort of theme it's um like you say it's a collaboration and that kind of lends nicely onto the team because but you're you're part of the your head of the costume department then and then how there's all there's all of many of us that work towards uh, a vision whether it be a jewelry maker a costume maker a breakdown artist how important is that to you I mean obviously it's important to you but well first of all I have to say that you are you are not you're leading a team Mm. but you're not alone in leading the team but also in reality the director and the production designer are and the cinematographer and yourself those people are responsible for the the look of the film Mm. and the content of the film and the writer of course and so after that comes every department and every department needs a leader or two one or two leaders you know people I see myself and the you know, and the supervisor of the costumes as leading the, the team because it's not possible on the big movies for the costume designer alone to be able to to do everything you can be yeah. a leader you know you can be charismatic you can be direct you can be you know you can explain your ideas but you will not get them done if it isn't if you don't have the collaboration of of the costume supervisor for a start and I would say your assistants especially your lead you know your number one and number two or two number one assistants because the whole job in the time given is much too enormous and complicated for you to be walking about saying you're doing it on your own so that's what I'd say about the collaboration and then of course between you and the costume supervisor and your assistants all feeding in um, information about other people you make your team and sometimes like and you choose a team who are going to support you and the idea so that's where it starts yeah and then the supervisor usually in my opinion or my my sort of supervisors choose the wardrobe people um knowing me and knowing how i work and knowing the director and how they work so that yeah. they are the right kind of costume costumiers for the yeah whatever the enterprise is so for on a superhero film they would choose people people who have experience of superhero suits and leading leading people and who understand how to look mm. after those people and then on a another kind of film they choose mm. other you know other people so uh, yeah that's a lot of the work of the supervisor as well as um controlling the budget and looking after how you're spending and whether you're making yeah. errors of judgment in spending you know that's splashing the cash <laughs> yeah well you know you might think something's really important but they might be having meetings with the technical people this is a good example really you might think that the costume which appears on saturday day, day the saturday in the script is so important you know but they might know the supervisor going to more meetings than you and talking to the stuntmen the special effects you know the, these kind of people they might know mm. that actually there's 10 minutes to shoot that and it's not going to be important at all, even though it seems like it's a big thing, you know? So they might be able to help you that way by saying, yeah, of course it's important what it looks like, but it doesn't <laughs> have to be how you're imagining it. You don't have to go as far as you're imagining. Save that money for the uh, for the Wednesday <laughs> when there's something on the 15 times 
in this film because of the way they're shooting yeah. I don't know if that's too complicated but uh, no no that that makes sense because I think uh, people have mentioned in the past but things aren't shot in order and no. often one thing can take like you say can take a couple of it's there for a couple of minutes but you spent X amount of time making yes. it compared to something else there's yeah. I guess that there's a level of perspective and experience that mm. you both bring to a situation and mm. can help you help each other out which I guess is the I think a brilliant supervisor has a nose for all that stuff, you know, and uh, they'll say to you, you know, that's never going to make it. You know, that's going to be <laughs> cut. And you go, that would be ridiculous. It's really important. <laughs> but they'll say, well, OK, we'll do what you know, do. They'll always say, do whatever you want to do. But in the end, I don't think that's going to be seen. And often <laughs> Yeah. Um, is it quite a pain, not a painful thing, but is it a little bit, um, a little part of the heartbreaks when something you've put so much time into then you find it's been cut? <laughs> it's horrible. Ask any designer, they'll all tell you the same. Because the thing is, you can also read a script and you can have an, an affection or a moment of, you know, of empathy with something in the story, which makes you think it's more than it yeah. is, you know. Whereas the directors think, looking at you and thinking, oh, this person's really keen. Why are they so interested <laughs> in that? You know, but and can go off on the wrong tangent with things. Often, you know, that's a, that's the thing that happens with all human beings in in design. I think is you can like something, or you can see something you could use really beautifully in a situation. You know, a Yoji Yamamoto mm -hmm. coat, for instance, or something, and you can think, "Oh, that would be so perfect there." You know, and then it, it would be just a big waste of you know ten thousand pounds <laughs> or something. Uh, so yeah, so there's a lot of that goes on, but that's all part of it. That's that's kind of frustrating and upsetting, but also it's fun. You know, even the idea that you could dream something is right for something is really nice, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And a lot of it, I like you say, being design and being creative. A lot of it is so personal, tasteless so personal sometimes yeah, absolutely. even mm. even for a, a character people have envisaged together yeah um you mentioned superheroes and um I, again i don't want to geek out here but um geek away. <laughs> yeah. um so you designed christopher nolan's batman trilogy and i think the reason why i say geek out is for me those i do have an interest growing up in superhero cartoons and such but for me they appealed to a broad audience not people that were just interested in batman and robin it was more they told story yeah, which i think that's why they were so successful yeah i completely mm. agree now with something like that although there was a different take on how the story was told there were still um very much established characters in this universe which had um from past films and television shows and mm -hmm. whatever it may be they had had, um, an established look how mm. was it say then going into that situation and designing for quite iconic kind of characters Batman Catwoman mm. the Joker and uh, without it kind of feeling a, a pressure to sort of mm. I, I mean, use the term live up to but no, it's not quite the right term no, kind I of where you know easily. yeah because I'll answer it by going off on a tangent slightly but yeah the first thing I ha ever had to do that for, that, that kind of following expectations of the audience, was James Bond. Ah, so, yes, of course. So that's just as much of a responsibility. Yeah. And at the time, probably even more of a responsibility for me, because I hadn't done anything like that before. Then you, I did Angelina Jolie in Tomb Raider. That was equally, you know, not equally watched, but it became so, you know. Mm. So I suppose the answer is <laughs> you do what you do on, for every film, on every character. You do loads of research 
And in that event, a superhero, you look at the drawings, you know, the wonderful drawings from the 20s right through or the 30s right through, you know, and you see what people have seen. And then you look at the films, the some of them, not all of them, but the previous films. I had no interest whatsoever in Batman when I started <laughs> doing it. No, but because I hadn't. And, and in a way yeah, that I think it helped. was it helped because it was to do with, not to do with that, in fact. But then you realise, as with Bond or as with all sorts of things that you design, you have a responsibility to the character, but you also have a responsibility to make the character appeal to a new age group or a new era. And had the people who drew the character lived now, mm. Frank Miller, they would have drawn the thing differently. So your yeah. job is to advance what you're doing through time and try to make up something or design something or invent something which ties into what we are now. And so with the bat suit especially, and I mean, I know I've given boringly, boringly plenty of interviews. I'm sure they're not. Well, <laughs> they sound like it. Um, I kind of went looking at the silhouette more than anything. So it was about the silhouette. If you can't maintain the silhouette of Batman when he comes through the dark or when you suddenly see him, which he's always doing, yes. then you're, you've lost it. You can't suddenly make him look you know, like he's got ears like that. <laughs> so you've got to follow the silhouette and then you've got to try to think, why would this person be dressed like this in whatever the date was, I've forgotten, say 2000 or something, 2004, yeah, there you are. So, and then you start looking and then talking to Chris Nolan loads and discovering the idea that there may be, you know, that the, the suit may have been made in Wayne Enterprises by Morgan Freeman as Fox. Mm -hmm. And so you think, well, what would he be researching to, to do this? And so going off towards military, new military developments and in one way and new fabrics you know in another way or what kind of fabrics because you don't want to do a heavy old wetsuit mm -hmm. chris nolan and christian bale all were invested fully in the idea that it had to be more more able to move cooler you know all these things which would be the same thing as a flight suit you know a, a, an aeronaut suit yeah. they would all have to be thinking how does he pee you know where does what, does air you know can air go in and out of this thing so going through all of that and then one day and I was looking in a shop at Nike trainers you know ah. and I thought oh there you are there's the answer you know, that's <laughs> it everything that they were the most modern up-to-date trainer and I don't remember which which trainer they were in fact but they had a, a mesh which was very, very strong and may have had metal thread through it or not. It certainly had high tensile nylon thread through it so that it held the foot. Then they had different designed layers of plastics, you know, oh. uh, if you, you can sort of visualize in, yeah. you know, the night. Then they had the, the sole that was, you know, very, very formed and, and pressed in a machine. And I thought, oh, well, that's it. So that's the way to go. You take all the military information that you've got and you look at the, the way Nike have made the shoe. And then I also looked at a, a very interesting company called Dionese, which is an Italian motorbike protective wear company. Oh. And uh, between all, I had looked at that on, for Angelina Jolie on Tomb Raider. So I'd met them and I'd seen how they made these fabulously crafted back 
um, spine plates and hip plates and all these sort of things. And so I thought, right, get all this together, work out how it could be. The next big phase then was finding the fabrics and the fabrics, in fact, we went to some fabric fairs, like there was one in Paris, and we went to, we talked to people who manufactured trainers and lightweight rucksacks and all of this sort of stuff. And we discovered who in Britain imported those different kinds of fabrics. And eventually we found, you know, all the right things. I'd say that in modern, in a modern way, that I could finish that by saying that designing for superhero films is if you want to be responsible for the design yourself, you know, if it's not being given to you, which sometimes, of course, it is. Like, I think that uh, Iron Man, for instance, you, well, no, I don't want to say that either because I think that new Iron Man is completely different to the old Iron Man. Mm. So you, your job is to remember the silhouette, remember the function, remember why the comics were successful, remember why people loved the character. Don't lose any of that, but put in something new and interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then the technical work, which you do along with all your wonderful technicians and your costume supervisor, you have to have all those people because you're running big work, big workshops, yeah. you know. Um, that's fantastic and fascinating. You so, must... Um learn and like you've said about the trainers inspiration can come from anywhere anywhere absolutely anywhere yeah yeah <laughs> it can come from anywhere you know it's usually there somewhere around you you know or in a book or whatever yeah, yeah definitely um you mentioned sort of the tech um, fabric and technological aspect of it where do you see um costume design and making going forward and the kind of incorporation of say wearable technology or that comes from comes more from say the superhero film and the that kind yeah, of yeah i was going to say it applies really mostly to the yeah. superhero film although it can apply to other films especially if they have stunts in them you know mm. um where do i see it going well it's a big discussion isn't it this because whether now is the moment when we'll <laughs> find out a lot of things i think but <laughs> yes. i i suppose i see Lots of creation of stuff in the computer, you know, and therefore I'm aware that even when that happens, they are still employing a costume designer, and I would love to do that. They're still employing a costume designer to supervise the texture of the fabrics, you know, or the kind of fabrics, and give examples of the. I'll come to that in Paddington, if you like, in a minute, but of giving of giving textured fabrics to people so that the people who draw in the computer have the correct lighting effect on the fabric or can see how the threads in the fabric catch the light or behave, you know, because it wouldn't really be fair for them to have to sit and try and invent all that as well as, you know, building these wonderful characters in the yeah. computer. So I suppose I see, in from a costume designer point of view, I see there being in the very modern films, like the superhero films, which I'm not at all sure will continue in their present form forever and ever, but I still think that there will be a degree of creation of characters in the computer coming up, and has been already. And, but I still think that in terms of creating characters and what they look like, the costume designer may be employed with a different 
brief. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And at the moment where my costume designering and supervisoring and what have you friends are telling me how difficult it is to even approach or touch or be in the room with actors. Of course. You know, you may find that that also sort of tinkers things a little bit towards the, what does the consultant, a consultative role for costume instead mm -hmm. of, I think it's awful and sad and everything. And I don't want to do that. I don't, well, I'm too old now probably, but I don't want to be that but then other people will love it you know that I mean there are now illustrating uh, creative people who who draw your costumes for you you know when you're when you're doing something so they're book quality are uh, the concepts artist type thing those people yeah well concepts one thing but concept and illustration i think people have always talked about concept concepting is making the whole thing up yourself including the person but illustrating is more collaborative and more interesting i would say because you're having daily or hourly discussions with the design people as you know and the set people and the lighting people so you're creating something far more possible as that. Yeah. whereas concept can create the unimaginable or the the impossible and then a supervisor usually has to come along and make there are supervisors working as designers at the moment because what they're doing is they're taking what exists and what's been drawn and what the comic companies like DC or Marvel want and they're making them into a reality. So that's another aspect of design in a way which is different. So it's breaking up into lots of different, you know. It's, um, it'll be, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how it moves forward. I think that's been a constant sort of conversation um because it's all a little bit unknown and like you say that kind of it seems so um against the idea of costume to not even be able to sort of touch the material exactly. or the character mm. of the actor or whatever it may be that you're designing mm. the look for it's um it's, it's yeah. a very interesting world we're entering right now well you know you can draw all you like and you can draw and then you can get an illustrator to make your drawings look nicer so the studios like them better so they can imagine them in a book you can get a concept artist to draw the whole thing and say well that's the superhero and i'm not going to do that you know I'm, that's not my my job or something but in the end somebody has to take the physical thing that the actor is going to put on and make it work on the actor and somebody has to have considered the comfort of the actor, put of the input of the actor, you know, they're an actor after all, not a, just a model, you know. <laughs> and somebody's got to be that interface between what's desired and what actually can happen. And so, mm. you know, that to me, I think that's always going to be there, whoever that is. You know? Yeah, that's true. So I guess it's a changing, it's a, I guess it's a changing role. It's a evolving yeah, in role. In some areas. Yeah. In yeah. some areas. Yeah. yeah yeah that's yeah. true um you sorry you mentioned characters you mentioned paddington earlier i've not had the chance to see the second one, but the first one is one of my favorite favorite movies <laughs> uh, it sounds oh. really sad i went to, i was like a fully fledged adult and i went to see it in the cinema I'll, hands up <laughs> no stop right there no it's not sad that's why the film's a success all over the world it's because paul king's so clever that he's managed to write it so that it appeals to adults and to children and teenagers i went with a load of teenagers they're all crying it is so, it's such a good movie um but you but you mentioned that and um that kind of design okay so imagine paddington himself was a cg character um how no, oh, how was that whole process <laughs> basically paddington the creation of paddington 
is a wonderful work by um, Pablo Grillo and his team. And towards making Paddington real, Paul wanted all the ingredients to be available to the other actors, if you like, so that they were acting with somebody and something all the time. So he had a real costume. <laughs> it was a small person who wore the real costume with a wig and with wonderful hands and feet that were made fabulously, created fabulously, which were exactly the same as the bear in the, in the, in the film. And then there was a mime artist oh, wow. who imbued themselves with the spirit of Paddington and acted in front of the actors so they could react to <laughs> him. So in some scenes, there was this small person who's a wonderful actress whose name I've forgotten now, which is shocking. Then there was the mime artist who did everything in an active way so that people had to, you know, follow what was going on so that their, you know, their movements, the actors' movements, the actors' watchings' movements were, were great. And then there was, oh, wow. uh, there were rather, parts of the bear, like there was a head of the bear and there were lots of different hats of the bear and there was the coat of the bear so that you could catch glimpses of an arm with the special hands on or a shoulder, or the hat and the hair, you know, so mm. it is a creation, but it's also uh, a fracture of all kinds of different little moments. And that's why I think it's fantastic. It was really, really interesting. And, and, and you had to work with the people that were creating it. They had to have examples of hair, they had to have examples of fabric, even tiny things like that, you had to make the leather buttons, so that they could use, you know, everything every little thing that you could give them to help them make the thing that they were creating more tangible, you know? Yeah. That we did for them. Um, no, that is really interesting because I think sometimes when you see sort of the behind the scenes footage of other types of films, there's usually like a, a person dressed in a green suit and it's all of, I guess it comes down to a lot of the other actors' imaginations of what this could yeah. look like, what this yeah. character could look like. So I think it's fascinating that, that they ha you had that tangibility on set. Yeah, um, yeah that basically the character on set. And remember from what you were saying earlier on, Paddington is a superhero. He is, Paddington, that's true. <laughs> Paddington belongs to the world in the same way James Bond belongs to the world. Batman belongs to the world. So you can't change it. You can, you can do your take on it and you can work with other people and make it as, as real as, as you humanly can. But Paddington exists in people's imaginations. Very so true, does yeah. Bond, so does, and expectations. So yeah. you've, you've got that. If you get it right, you get a double whammy. Because if you get it right, people not only think your costume's right, but they also kind of really jump to the character, you know? Mm. But if you get it wrong, then people are disappointed. That's, yeah. And that's a sad thing. <laughs> No, yeah, but I think with um, Paddington, there's definitely a love, specifically the movies, there is a love. Anyone I've, I've ever spoken to about it, the endearing qualities, there obviously was a success. Um, oh, you kind of do go I'm away feeling like this character is real. Well, the, the most fa fantastically important ingredient I've missed out, the voice of Ben oh. Whishaw. Ah, yeah. I mean, it's impossible for you to imagine someone else's voice. Now you've, that's a kind of example. Now you've heard Ben Whishaw being Paddington. Yeah, you couldn't unhear it. 
it's really kind of impossible for you to imagine that the next Paddington would have someone else's voice. You know, it's kind of, he, he was yeah. perfect. <laughs> what can I say? Perfect. Emotively, everything. Fragility. Yeah. 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 No, I completely agree. It would be hard to imagine another yeah. voice playing him. Um, but yeah, I think we were all 100% invested in Paddington. <laughs> Definitely. <Yeah. laughs> well, get the one. I'm expecting a text message from you very soon. <laughs> I'm not joking. I shall let you know. <laughs> It's your pleasure. It's going to be your pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it's on my to-watch list. I've got a very growing list of things to watch. Oh, um, so this is a bit of a, a curveball question, but I feel like you must um, to, you must meet loads of famous people, I guess. Have you ever been starstruck? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> How about when I'm in my hotel in Beverly Hills, little tiny hotel tucked away in Beverly Hills, I and then I come home from work, being out at work, doing something, shopping, I suppose. And um, the people behind the desk who know me by now, because I've been there a few weeks, they say to me, there's been a lunatic on the phone, they said. Oh. <laughs> Keeps telling me he's Marlon Brando. And I said, next time he rings, put him through. It is Marlon Brando. That made me, I mean, that made me starstruck. Jack oh, Nicholson, wow. Yeah, it was amazing. I had the most That's... amazing, yeah, I never got to talk, to meet him. My assistant had to do his costumes for whole reasons, which are, because my daughter was giving birth to a baby and I had oh. to choose between going for the baby, no choice, <laughs> and Marlon Brando. <laughs> But anyway, I was pretty starstruck by, uh, or, you know, shocked and, and fabulously excited by that. That is cool. And uh, my husband was in the room with me and he kept saying, give me the phone, give me the phone. <laughs> and I kept saying, no, it's work. <laughs> and, and then um, in the same sort of period when I was living in LA for a little bit, um, I had to costume Jack Nicholson for a film called Blood and Wine. And uh, he would never, ever, ever get let me have a fitting, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had to get stuff made by Chiruti in Paris. And it was a very big, complicated thing. And he had a character which was a bit naff, a kind of wine, winery. Not a winery with vineyards, but a place where there's hundreds of bottles. Oh. Anyway, so he was a little bit of Miami naff type. And <laughs> so I couldn't just, you know, I wanted it to be really perfect. I was sort of in a, that thing where you're, you're really starstruck by Jack Nicholson and you're also really terrified of putting pressure on him because he worked, but his assistants or his agent or whoever won't make him come have a fitting. So in the end, I had found out from someone else the number of his housekeeper. And I had to ring his house and I started ringing his house. And I said, I know he doesn't want to talk to me, but I'm leaving in two days and he ha- I have to see him so that I can go to Paris. And I made it all sound so dramatic. <laughs> anyway, in the end, he came to the phone. Oh, wow. And he said, oh, yeah, tomorrow morning, come up here. So I went, I never thought he'd be there. Oh, wow. And so I had this whole morning in, with Jack Nicholson in Jack Nicholson's house, which was some other whole story, a fabulous story. I'll write it down one day. Of a most extraordinary place. And um, I had my costume meeting with him and I went and did his costumes. And he said, they're awful. I would never wear these clothes. Oh. <laughs> but... They were his clothes. They were the clothes for the character. You know what I mean? And that was what I had to go and tell him to start with. I had to say, look, these are not the kind of clothes I know you would like them. And this is what I want you to wear. But he was brilliant, you know, because he's a proper actor. You know, yeah. he didn't think he'd have to be wearing things that were his, you know. Anyway, so that's one. And uh... those two stories are pretty amazing. 
Um, Marlon and Brando on the phone. I love how the hotel were just confused about why you'd be calling. Well, they just told them, that, you know, they were really, they kept saying, yes, sir, you know, putting, going off. And then in the end, they got, I was there and I got, he got through. He was great. It was really great. Funny. I stayed on the phone for about half an hour Aww. and he was funny, Aww. funny and sad. <laughs> that is, those are pretty cool stories, though, I have to say. Um, I, I imagine, obviously, you're professional when you encounter these people, but is it hard not to kind of be like, have um, a fan moment? <laughs> Internally, it's terrible to say I've had a fan moment. I had a slightly a fan moment, but Jack Nicholson made me go beyond it. Well, actually, I tell you something. I'm a fan of Hugh Grant, and I really, really have the quiver. You know, the the wobbles when I I've had to work with him a couple of times, and I really, really can't behave sensibly you know <laughs> i can do it and i don't know i just think he's the most really wonderful combination of you know the game he sort of has played of this you know whatever flip you know yeah sometimes and the real good political person that he is inside you know and how brave he is with his opinions when everyone in a world when everyone is you know cutting their tongue off not mm. to say anything that might yeah. be politically incorrect i just ha he is one of mine but there is a woman too and i can't think who it is now it'll come to me that's okay you can interject yeah. later if you think of it <laughs> <laughs> so actually i'm going to circle back to your beginnings and i know i read somewhere that you started your working career as a nurse yeah. if i'm correct in saying that um yeah an orthopedic yeah oh okay well it'd be lovely to hear how um you well, how you became a nurse and then what led you into the world of costume? It's not so fascinating. It's just odd. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, I was, my father was a very serious socialist and he believed, we lived in the middle of nowhere, like I'm now in the middle of Wales. And he believed that people should give back, you know, for their education, give back to the community, to the world for their education. So not a, not a silly idea at all. And so I had said that my ambition, I was a bit mad and flighty, you know, and a bit of a beatnik when I was uh, still in school. And I wanted to go to art school. That's all I wanted. And he said, no, I'm not really willing for you to go to art school. I, you know, those were the days. It's a long time ago now. I'm not willing for you to go to art school. You need to do something more serious. But no one ever thought that we would go to university in my family because I suppose, you know, I'm 71 now. And so I suppose, no, I'm 72 actually. I suppose no one really 100% thought that that was what you did, you know, at that point. Mm. So he said, um, you ought to do something, you know, I'm really advising you strongly. You ought to do something that would help people. And so we had a lot of backs and backwards and forwards. And it was decided that I would become a physiotherapist. I was good at talking to people and good at looking after people and doing things. And I'd always gone around doing my local village's hair for my pocket money. And so I was used oh. to handling, you know, already I was used to handling people. And we lived in a shop. And so I was used to people coming. And he said, you've got all the right things. You know, he was quite wise. He was very wise, actually. He said, go and do that. And he said, if you still want to be something else when you're doing that, then that's a different thing. You'll be over 18 and, you know, you'll be able to do whatever you want in the end. But go and try that. Mm. So I got a place in a college, in an, a hospital in Shropshire, where you studied orthopedics, nursing. So that was a nursing degree. 
And by, if you got your nursing degree, you're automatically went into a physiotherapy training course. Mm. So I said I would do it and I did it. And while we were there, we st I still wanted to work in sort of some sort of entertainment or something. And so together with a boyfriend and some other close friends, we made a folk club and we also made a thing where we entertained the patients once a week. Aww. And it was just something we did, you know. But I was so bossy, which I am, <laughs> and so bossy, that I ended up organising it all, or was part, mostly the organiser of it all. And we had great people come to our folk club. Uh, famous people came and sang, and it was all really professional. Wow. And then we had, used to get the nurses to push the patients, you know, and we used to give them a, a concert. Oh. Anyway, at the end of that, or during that time, I... Uh, some of the people who were in that group with me went away to do things to do with entertainment and one of them went to RADA and he was the one that I was kind of closest to and when he got there he said you know you should come here this would be so you you should be a stage manager none of us knew there was such a thing as a stage manager <laughs> he said you should come here and be a stage manager stage management is just exactly it's what you do you know blah blah so at the towards the end of my orthopedics when I was getting my degree and before I did my physiotherapy properly, I did probably six months of physiotherapy or something, I applied to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art on a complete whim, and I got a place. Wow. And the only reason I got a place I'm convinced of till this day is that the woman who ran the course of, for stage management, who's called Dorothy Tenham, had slipped a disc. Oh. <laughs> when I went there for my interview, that's all we talked about was her back. I was looking at her and I said, oh, something's wrong with you. You're out of <laughs> Anyway, so our whole conversation was that. And at the end, she said to me, whether you're free now or you're free later, I'm saving a place for you. You are exactly the right kind of person to come and do this course. Oh. So sometime later, I, set, I took them up on a lot of things happened in my life in the meantime, which I, is another conversation. But I asked them whether my place was still there and they said it is. So I started out being in theatre by doing stage management. But when I went to RADA, it was like a new world in every way to me, I saw that there was costume design. And everything about costume design appealed to me almost immediately. Everything about it. Making costumes, finding old clothes in markets, which I did already. You know, everything appealed. And so I slowly swerved out of stage management. I got my, my degree in stage management. And then I went and started to be a costume designer, working with a load of other young, young people who we all shared a house together. And I started like that in the open space theatre in Tottenham Court Road. And there, thanks to Thelma Holt and Charles Marowitz, I started to design costumes. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's um, a very, very cool story. Very, um, it's kind of serendipitous. Is that the right word? Well, I, I think all of that kind of thing is about how you behave towards people. Mm -hmm. And you can't behave in a certain way towards people if you don't feel like that. So your fortune, your inherited whatever, is that if you can talk to people and you're interested in people, and this is why I think that it is serendipitous and it comes, your whole life comes out of um, how you behave towards other people. I believe that if that was a religion, I'd believe it, you know. Yeah. And so I suppose that's how you meet people and you talk to people and you tell people about things and then you ask them about themselves and that's how you end up 
finding ways of doing things you know I, I just don't know people start out with an idea of what they want to become but I was not like that I started out not knowing what I wanted to become <laughs> and found all kinds of things about me that seemed to fit like a jigsaw puzzle into costume design that's sort of I don't think I've ever said that before but that's how I feel it was yeah you've got to be open yeah 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 De- I, you really have yeah I definitely agree with you there I see a baby in a pram going along, and I have been like this for years, and it's going, ah, that's everybody, <laughs> lucky baby, <laughs> because then there's one like this, <laughs> letting on. <laughs> of course, you can't tell, because what they'll become is not necessarily what they are then, but I do think that uh, babies, you know, from babyhood onwards, if your parents encourage you to be outward and not trusting so that you run off with somebody, but interested you know in people italian babies if you watch them they're so outward ah. but they are because they're always being in, you know introduced to this is so so here oh look at the baby you know that's it's all about that and it's all about them being beamed at by outside yeah. people and then they beam back and mm. so they grow up to be you know beamers and and people who um who are interested to find out i think or yeah a curiosity yeah curious yeah. children curious adults i guess actually curiosity that's right yeah what has been your favorite or most interesting costume you can answer whichever way you prefer i can't do it <laughs> no i can't do it someone else said the other day i forget i was on some panel thing and they said you always love the costumes you're doing at the time and I've thought about that afterwards and I thought, actually, that's not really true because you can hate what you're doing and you still have to get on with it. <laughs> um, I love the costumes in a film that I did, which I was going to recommend as one of my films called Funny Bones oh. by uh, Peter Chelsom. And I love the costumes in the Nolan films because not only did Chris, does Chris Nolan give you, or did he to me, give uh, lots of artistic freedom but he also does it within knowing when he sees it, he knows what he wants, I think, mm. unless he was fooling me. <laughs> so I love the costumes that I did for Heath Ledger, you know, the Joker's costume. I love it. You know, I loved it. I loved all the, the, the thought that went into it, the reference of it, the explanation. And then most of all, I love when Heath put it on and stood in front of us all the first time, you know, in this private studio place and just how he won it. He earned, you know, took it away from you and he made it his costume. And uh, I loved that. Um, I mean, I like, I like so many different things. <laughs> I tell you what I really like is... Uh, I love Angelina Jolie's silver wetsuit, which I designed, which is in um, Tomb Raider. And uh, it was so difficult. It was the most minimal thing you could do. And it had to be cut by this fabulous wetsuit cutter, Shirley Wills, and made, I think, by, you know, one of the... I'm not sure if it was made by her in the end or by one of the great wetsuit companies. You know, there are so many people that you couldn't do things without. But anyway... And so one day I was in L.A. and I was driving along from the hotel, the London Hotel, along Sunset Boulevard, which is something you'd dr- never, ever imagine in your uh. life that you'd ever say. You know, <laughs> me in Sunset Boulevard, you think, wow. So I'm driving along and I don't know why I'm there, but it's after Tomb Raider. I think it must be because uh, to do the thing with uh, Jack Nicholson or something. Uh. And that, in front of me, like, I don't know how many feet high, it seemed like 90 feet high, probably was 90 <laughs> feet high, is Angelina Jolie on a, the hugest billboard on Sunset, which is, oh, you wow. know, 
by the James Raquel or something. Before you come to the Chateau Marmont, there's this thing. And uh, it was her in her silver wetsuit looking out over Los Angeles. Oh. And I thought, oh, it was <laughs> worth it. And it was torture to do, you know, uh, torture. And so um, there she was standing there. And it was like, what a buzz, you know. That must have been thrilling. It's not my favourite costume. It's just one that really gave me a, a moment of, wow, <laughs> that's amazing. We're in Hollywood and there it is, you know. Then afterwards, other people were there, you know, like the Joker. But, but that was a moment of shock to me. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I guess it's a feeling of proud, being proud, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, or thinking, yeah, yeah. You know, being yeah. proud of um, pursuing the thing. But also, now I don't know about proud so much as just a sort of a big, you know, just exciting to see something you've done being you, like as a, you know, being being that big, <laughs> being that <laughs> being that big and being that uh, airbrushed, probably. <laughs> just... yeah. I'm sure. I think it's probably. I mean, most of us that work, we have a very. I, can't, I always use the word gratifying. Job because you do it quite immediately see what you've yeah, made no, exactly. you've created that's there in front of yeah, you exactly. I think we're very very, very lucky yeah. that you yeah we have the opportunity to do that yeah. and then it ends up off more often than not on a well, even in the film but also the posters yeah, like you absolutely. say or billboards yeah. Or, yeah. yeah um so what are the highlights I'm going to say it's a twofold question highlights and challenges of your job there's I think I could say that there are loads of highlights and we're so lucky to do what we do because there are loads of highlights, moments of joy, you know, moments of horror as well. But we've had quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think, um, well, obviously the highlight was winning an Oscar for Topsy Turvy. I mean, that's a highlight. Being taken to L.A. with my husband or with my partner, I should call him, not my husband, um, to get the Oscar for Topsy Turvy, directed by Mike Lee which was a, a low-budget film about something so obscure, really, you know, in terms of the, of the mostly what gets nominated. And by some incredible fluke to have been nominated was enough. You know, I remember when they t rang me up, they, my agent rang me up and said, you've got a nomination. <laughs> and I said, what for? <laughs> what for? <laughs> and she said, no, oh. an Oscar nomination, you know. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was a highlight, of course. Um, I'd say generally traveling the world and meeting people all over the world has been, you know, an ongoing highlight. Um, earning money at something that you enjoy doing most 90% yeah. of the time is a highlight. Having had great good fortune so far, touch wood. Touching it. Yep. <laughs> touch wood. Yes. Uh, yeah, I can't think of anything else. Really. I can't be more um, specific than that. What was the other thing, what other part of that question? Challenges. Oh, all of its challenges. <laughs> That's what you live for, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely um, drives us, I think. Yeah. We're all problem solvers. That brings me on to, that was a nice note to bring me on to my very final question, which is, what are your three to watch recommendations? Well, there's so many. I just sat and talked to my husband about it. And the thing is, I don't actually, there's, you know, everyone says things because they're fantastic films. And of course, you know, there are fantastic films and I, there are many and many. But I do think that everyone now should have watched or should watch Chernobyl. Do you I know Chernobyl? Started. Yes, yeah. I have started it. Started that. Okay, well, I think you should watch it all because Chernobyl is, you know, from the past, mm. <laughs> from a time slightly past. But it's so pertinent to the world now about what happens 
and about how there are brave people are brave the the most surprising people are brave it's not soldiers and, and people dressed mm. you know in army uniforms with huge weapons that are brave ordinary people when confronted with I make myself cry <laughs> oh no ordinary people when confronted with a drama so huge that they're in, they become small and and you know they they they're not able to to solve it in any way will do extraordinarily brave things <laughs> mm. um, yeah no i definitely think that's pertinent to now the world we're living in and then as well as that people will speak up and become punished absolutely for speaking the truth to power in chernobyl that's what the story is really in my opinion and so that's something which we're rapidly losing every politician is a nimby pimby mamsy pamsy doesn't say anything talks you know a million <laughs> no but they are they're so weak and ineffectual and unbrave no one's brave hardly you know they must be brave people but they don't get on the telly or whatever and then as well from a professional point of view the costumes and the design are so supreme and so good and it deserves to be watched in you know on a large screen but it's watched on televisions mostly but it still comes over and it's a kind of design which i'm sad to say is european and it should be lauded because it's a kind of design which can go unnoticed and has gone unnoticed in the awards you know in the awards programs of years and years it's meticulous but it's also emotional you know there's a meticulous attention to detail but there's also added in this thing of the the emotion going with it is there the person who did it has somehow maintained the characters and things about the characters little touches it's just brilliant anyway and i say that about the costumes which i i believe is odile dix moreau i think it is but also the sets are, are superb i know some of them are real but not all of them are and also the um the direction and the acting it, it was to me it was the most wonderful example of what you can do and i think it's also a wonderful example of how television is taking over from film as a, a a medium that you can really tell stories on and say things given the right producers and the right you know yeah. Yeah. so chernobyl first that's a good one that's a good one then from my own point of view i was going to say paddington both films <laughs> paddington both films because paddington is an example of joy <laughs> bring joy to the world idea 100% paddington makes almost everyone i've almost i i actually don't think i've met anyone who's seen who's seen it who hasn't been moved by it and brought joy by it mm. i personally love the design of it because it's whimsical and colorful and things that you're not allowed to do anymore which is to be a bit exaggerated and you know i love it <laughs> and character building but in a uh, not a cartoon way but in a an eccentric you know building characters who are just at the edge of being um, real you know they're nearly yeah. passing into 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 um, hyper real and for me it's something which everyone could do with now which is a, a bit of joy and mm. also good acting good directing good writing you know all of those things so for me both the paddingtons with a packet of popcorn and a bottle <laughs> of wine or whatever you drink you know uh, would be a fabulous thing to watch and and think about about the goodness in it it's a moral 
There are two moral tales, Paddington 1 and Paddington 2. And um, you can look at it as a child and think of it as a little story, or you can look at it as a slightly more aware person and think of it as a sort of morality um, tale for children and everybody of goodness, about goodness and kindness. Yeah, definitely. I like that. I'm there with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, I suppose I have to put one in of my own films that I've loved doing. And which is by an underrated director called Peter Chelsom, who um, I've had faith in all his life, all his working life. <laughs> and uh, it's called Funny Bones. And it's by film buffs, it's rated, but people don't know it. And I kind of wish that more people did. And it's, uh, it's a very complicated story about comedy and about what is comedy and what is funny and who is funny. And it's got lots of lovely actors in, like, uh, I can't remember now. Lee Evans is in it. He's the lead. Ah. Um, but it's before Lee Evans became Hollywood famous, you know. And uh, Jerry Lewis is in it. And Leslie Caron. And uh, Oliver Platt. And it's a kind of, uh, lots of other people as well. But lots of very, very funny character actors. And I love doing the costumes. And I love the whole film, really. Yeah, I can watch it, you know, often. Over and <laughs> over again. Long. And that's only because of me. That's because you asked me what I like. What, I like those kind of costumes, yeah. I like real costumes, which are f so real that they make you jump at you, you know. And that you understand them. And they're not obvious costumes. They're just right, correct, you know, totally right. And then, um, and I've just been watching um, uh, Babylon Berlin. Oh, I've never heard of that. Which is a costumes by a costume designer called Pierre-Yves Guerreau, I think his name is, mm. if I say it right. He's a French costume designer. And uh, the costumes are marvellous. And so far, all of the design is excellent in sets, costumes and the acting. So... It's an interesting thing I would never have watched if I hadn't been recommended it by somebody in these long lockdown days. Perfect time. So it's on now. But So that's what I say. Ah. <laughs> ah, thank you for your recommendations. And thank you so much, Lindy, for coming on and having a conversation right. with me. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to do things, you know. It's a pleasure to share things with people. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lindy. Although there won't be any new episodes coming out for a little while, if you haven't already, do check out the older episodes featuring guests from multiple aspects of the film, TV, and theatre world. And do check out the Crew Chats Instagram page, where we'll be posting more to watch recommendations. And as always, if you get a moment, could you please like, follow, or subscribe on your podcast platform. Thank you.